Welcome to Climbing Thy Mountain, a podcast chronicling the rise of Liberty Athletics through the eyes of those who witnessed it. Today, we welcome in 1977 Liberty graduate and current licensing and branding manager Kevin Keyes to the podcast to talk about the early days of Liberty Athletics. Now, let's send it to the studio as host Joshua Lepowski sits down with Keyes. Hello, folks, and welcome into the very first episode of Climbing Thy Mountain, a podcast on the rise of Liberty Athletics through the eyes of those who witnessed it. I am Joshua Lepowski, your host, and before we get into our guest for today, I wanted to give you guys a rundown of what this podcast is going to be. So this is going to be a six-episode series in which I will be interviewing different people from different eras of Liberty Athletics and talking about their perspective on Liberty Athletics and its rise through the last 51 years from the vision of Dr. Jerry Falwell Sr. into the athletics program we see today. But enough of that, let's transition into our first episode. We have a really cool first guest here for our podcast today, and that is Kevin Keyes, who uh, the way you described it to me is uh, you said you are pretty much one of the very few guys left from the very early, early, early days, the infancy of Liberty and of Liberty Athletics. So, uh, Kevin, first of all, thanks for being here, and just to tell, uh, get everybody up to speed about uh, what you've done here. Well, I came here as a freshman in uh, 1973, and so the second year, or the, the third, the start of the third year of the school, I was here as a student. In 72, I was around a lot. Uh, and made the decision to come here as a youth major. And uh, so I've been around from the earliest times of the school, uh, not the first two years, but everything therefore. And football started in 73, the year that I came. Uh, It was uh, the second sport that started. We actually had basketball uh, the previous year. And uh, so there were some things that were already going on, but not a substantial amount of sports at that point in time. And I started off coming to school, I didn't have it paid for, and I had to find a way to pay for it. And so a chance came up to be a manager on the basketball team. And uh, Dan Manley was the coach at the time, and he brought me, I I saw, I, I heard somebody talk about it. I made contact and asked if I could come talk about the position. He said, sure, and we talked. And he basically boiled it down to a guy named Roger Holland and myself. He was going to hire both of us. And he said, okay, one of you is going to be the trainer and one of you is going to be the information guy. Who wants which? And Roger chose to be the trainer and I chose to be the information guy. And so that kind of began my career with Liberty as I was doing that as a student from my freshman year on. And so I was also a bus driver back in the early days. That's how you got around on campus, uh, campus used as a light term. Um, so it's a long history of being with the athletic department. Became full-time as a student in 75 and then became the first ever full-time sports information person in 77, August of 77. Uh, I had gone off and started my own business. The The new AD had asked for one thing. He had asked for a sports information director. He offered it to another person who was a sports writer here in the area. He turned it down, and he called me and asked me if I wanted to come back. And I decided that I'd rather do this for my career instead of driving a truck for my career. Well, that's understandable. Um, you know, rather, I mean, I personally would rather uh, do that than drive a truck for my career. But, uh, you know, regardless um, you know, tell me, give me a little bit of insight into kind of like where the university was as an athletic program back in those early, early days. Because I know even back then, like, 
even the the branding was different like in its infancy i remember in convo a few years ago they um they showed a picture of liberty's first football uniforms and they basically copied the green bay packers so it was i mean you know everything was in its infancy like they were still trying to get everything under their feet even the stuff you don't even recognize at that time yeah they um back in the earliest days of the school we wore green and gold for our colors and our helmets were solid gold helmets um so that and the reason for that, Dr. Falwell really liked Vince Lombardi. And so because of that, he patterned our colors and some of our things around that. Our very first logos, which actually never got used on the helmet, but they got used in a lot of things, looked like a ribbon. And the earliest days up until 75, when the name changed, that ribbon was green and gold. And then in 75, it changed to red, white, and blue because the name of the school changed from Lynchburg Baptist College to Liberty Baptist College. And so the color combination changed to American flag, red, white, and blue. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, you know, you talked about how, you know, everything changed during that time frame and, and, and that. And you mentioned Dr. Falwell a little bit here. So, you know, tell me in the earliest, earliest days, it truly was a vision this university was and not everything that he wanted was here yet because i mean man i mean everything had to be built over time and so you know tell me about you know what 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 he was like how you know instrumental he was in those early days and kind of how he kept everybody on the same page when you know you're seeing what you're seeing and you're not seeing what what he's envisioning yet it was his vision was very verbal in a lot of ways. He never hesitated to tell us what the vision was. I'm talking about as a student body and where he saw us going in the future. Um, obviously, it was uh, very, um, I call it immature in the early days because we were brand new. Um, we were playing football with young men who were probably more like Division three with some exceptions. For instance, Chip Smith, one of our first great ball players, played baseball and football here. Dr. Falwell personally recruited them. He was the son of a preacher over in the Tidewater area. He had uh, intended to go to the University of North Carolina. He was a running back. And Dr. Falwell got him on a plane and with his dad. They were flying to a speaking engagement. And during that plane ride, he convinced Chip to come here and play football. Um, of course, the recruiting rules weren't the same then as they are now. Uh, at that point, we were, a, were not affiliated in any way. And we played uh, six games that first year, and three of them were against junior college JV-type programs. And so it was, it was very different. We played at City Stadium, which is still in the same location today, obviously a different surface. We, it's a turf surface now we had a grass surface then and your heritage and glass programs all played there so you had three football teams tearing up a grass surface for an entire season and so uh, by the end of the year that surface was uh, in dire straits to say the least well and i'm sure when you factor in the fact that high school football teams play on friday night liberty plays on saturdays I mean, you real because I mean, Liberty normally they played on Saturdays back in those days. Correct? Oh yes, yeah. yes. So you factor that in. Liberty is the third team on the field that weekend. Some instances, and now all of a sudden, oh dang! Now you're playing. Now you're playing the way that it is. But that you know, that's just you know part of part of the early days of 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 the infancy of a program. You had to make do with what you had. Um, from the earliest days, they did practice on Treasure Island. 
which is an island in the middle of the James River. Uh, it was a former 4-H camp. It had been bought by the church, turned into a Christian camp for kids to go during the summer. And then it became a college residence. Uh, those, they had to build another series of dorms on the uh, south end of the island for the women to live in the dorms. And then the guys were up in the old uh, camper cabins. And in between was the football practice field. And in the earliest days, we didn't even have a football building. Later on, I think like the second year, they built what they called the football barn. And they would keep their equipment in there and have lockers. But it was was not substantial in any way. But that's where football practice, soccer practice, soccer actually played their games down there in the earliest days. Um, So Treasure Island was, in the infancy of the school, was the center for football. And uh, it was a very Spartan existence back in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, where is, uh, what, what, what does uh, Treasure Island look like these days? Is it still around or is uh, it? Treasure Island was destroyed in the flood of 1985. Ah. And um, there are still buildings there. Uh, it's overgrown. It's never been re-inhabited. Uh, the only way you can get there now, uh, following in, in 85, when the flood hit, it knocked down the bridge that we used to get across and uh, so it remained uninhabited other than uh, vagrants, homeless people sometimes can get a boat and get across there. Uh, I'm told there are some that live there even today. But, um, but the, the island is not used for anything effectively right now. Wow. Um, and, and I've also heard that, um, that when that flood happened, what it also did is it, it washed away a lot of the earliest video footage of Liberty Athletics as well. So. Well, think of this, too. It wasn't video. It was film. It was 16-millimeter uh, film, and they were in cans and everything else. And, of course, back then, one of the, there are several things that played into it. They're very hard to find early video of our teams. Um, a lot of times seniors leaving would ask for their best game, and one of their position coaches would give it to them. Uh, they used to do what are co- what we called cut-ups, which nowadays are edits. Uh, they would do cut-ups of the offense, the defense, the special teams, things like that. And they would give them to the players to take home. Over the years since, I've had a couple of players give me back 16-millimeter video that we turned into uh, digital format. There are ways you can transfer that nowadays. But um, for the most part, the film was gone between that and the fact that when a former coach would leave and a new coach would come in, they wouldn't necessarily hang on to all the old film. They would find ways to get rid of it, which so often was giving it to the players. But yes, there was also film that was destroyed in the flood. Everything was destroyed in the flood. Um, Mark Hine, our vice president of student, student life, went down to the islands several years ago and found shoes and shoulder pads and things like that that were still down there, kind of buried in the mud kind of a thing. And um, the the building where football practiced was still there, and there was still football gear and football items like old media guides and old game programs in the floor of the building. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, it's it's almost like a weird, um, you know, almost like a time capsule in a way, you know, somewhat that that is, you know, nowadays compared, you know, to where it was. So, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, who, you know, give me the timeline of how each sport 
kind of became integrated into Liberty in those early days? Because as you said, basketball came, was there first, then football came along. I think baseball came along in the later 70s, I think, if I'm not wrong. Uh, not so, later, middle 70s okay. is when it came along. Baseball started as a club sport, and then uh, Al Worthington came, a former pitcher with the Minnesota Twins. He's in their wall of honor and stuff like that. He came here to uh, run the baseball program, and um, I'm not positive the year. I would think it was probably about 76. I think 75 was a club. All the records from those years have been lost, and half the records from the earliest years of baseball uh, don't really exist. Like, you would think you'd at least have a scorebook. That wasn't Al's forte, and so he wasn't overly concerned about it. He cared about how the kids played and how they lived their lives. And he didn't worry too much about the book. And so when I started as a sports information director trying to find the book, it didn't. he could not remember what happened to it from that very first year. So we had to piece together some history from newspaper stories and things like that. But um, basketball under Dan Manley and Dale Gibson was the first sport that uh, we started. Uh, football came in 73. Rock Royer was the head coach. And then Rock Royer died. He flew his own plane and would go out recruiting with his own small Cessna-type plane. I don't know if it was a Cessna, but that small one-engine kind of plane. He would go out recruiting. He'd been a coach at the Naval Academy. I actually knew of him and knew some of his family because they're from— I live up, grew up in the D.C. area, and they were born and raised there, and he was a coach at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. And I actually had awareness of him before I, I got here. And— um, so he was flying on a back from a recruiting trip and got disoriented in uh, a bad weather situation and his plane crashed and he was he was killed in I believe it was November of 73 and then John Cartwright who had been a quarterback at the Naval Academy broke all of Roger Staubach's records Probably somebody you, a lot of your listeners won't know because we're talking the dark ages here. I know, I know Roger Staubach. I know who he is. <laughs> yeah, but Staubach, all, all of his records got broken by John Cartwright. John Cartwright was uh, offensive coordinator, I believe, under Rock Royer. And when Rock died, John Cartwright was named as the head coach by Dr. Falwell Sr. Um, the next pro- program started probably would have been baseball but within that same time frame we started volleyball and women's basketball and Brenda Bonheim was uh, instrumental in that uh, process. Linda Farver became the head coach after uh, Brenda Bonheim and uh, Brenda Bonheim's in our Hall of Fame and and stuff like that. Uh, She died of cancer a few years ago. Uh, Her husband was our first wrestling coach. Wrestling was a program that was started in the late 70s. Wrestling actually won our first national championships. We won multiple national championships with our wrestling team. At that point, we were members of the NCCAA, the National Christian College Athletic Association. And uh, we played in that for a number of years, and then we became aligned with the NAIA also. So we were aligned both. NCCAA did not have football as one of their sports, and so we were looking for a place for our football to be, and we ended up joining in with the NAI and being involved in the NAI. So that was kind of the earliest sports that we had. Soccer started fairly early. I I, I would have to look at a an old record book to know for sure when it started. 
Ed Dobson, who was our dean of students at the time, uh, he coached the soccer team. And then when he retired from coaching soccer, he recruited Bill Bell to become our coach. And most people know of our soccer and Bill Bell because he was um, a European Cup uh, kind of talent. He was all-world kind of player and coached here for a long time. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, I'd I'd heard stories of Bill Bell and and, and some of these other coaches and things like that. You know, it seems to me that everyone, you know, just – Everyone had such a passion for building their program so early on. What do you think facilitated that? Well, obviously, leadership helped. Dr. Falwell believed in every sport, supported every sport, was there. I mean, football games, you'd see him on the sidelines um, at a football game. You'd see him up in the stands. He sat on the row right in front of the press box. So he was always sitting in front of the press box when I was in there at City Stadium. It's a wide-open press box. It's very open air. And uh, if he didn't like something, he would turn around and beat on the table uh, in the press box and ask me to tell him why that happened and stuff like that. Why did the officials make that call? You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, But he also spent a good amount of time on the sidelines. There are a lot of iconic photos of him in the coaching box during the game with a head football coach. Uh, standing right there with him, and uh, sometimes his kids were with him. Um, so, there, uh, Doctor Falwell's involvement. He w- he loved baseball. He would go out and sit on the bench in the dugout, which in those days, to be honest, was an open space. It wasn't a dugout like you would think of today. He would, uh, and you would just sit on the hillside in the earliest days. Then eventually, they put some bleachers in, but he would go out and sit in the dugout area with the players during the game, encouraging them and talking to them and stuff like that. Uh, There's a funny story from the early days of softball that Paul Wetmore tells where, um, and and actually the middle days of softball, but Dr. Falwell would always come to the softball games, a lot of times in the, uh, the black suburban and just sit up on the hillside and watch the team. If they hit a home run, he would hit the ugle horn on his, his truck and all that. Well, one day he comes down and Paul's coaching a third base box and Dr. Falwell uh, is sitting in the dugout with the girls and talking with them and, you know, being friendly. His phone rings and he answers the phone while he's talking to get signal. He stepped out of the dugout. So he's standing in between the third base coaching box and the dugout during live play uh, talking on his phone, kind of oblivious to the fact that the game's going on around him. And the umpire stopped the game and looked at Paul Wetmore and, and like, gave him the look of, what is this? What, what's going on? And Paul just shrugged his shoulders. He told him, he goes, it's Dr. Falwell. You know, uh, what am I going to do? And uh, ultimately, uh, the umpire wanted to meet him. So Dr. Falwell, when he was done with the call in between innings, Paul took the, uh, Dr. Falwell up to meet the umpire and, and talk to him and stuff like that. Pretty funny story that Paul <laughs> Wetmore tells. That's, that's so interesting. I mean, that would... Uh... You know, sounds like something he would do. Uh, it really does. Um, you know, based on the conversations I've had with people about him and about his personality, and you know, it, he was so involved in in athletics. And, totally, and, yeah, involved. totally involved. You know why? You know why was that so important to him? Because a lot of times, university presidents will take a more like they'll 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 be at athletic events, they'll be there, they'll support it, but they'll take a hands off approach with it because, you know, maybe not their area of expertise. But Falwell was 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 there with with everybody and with them throughout that time. Well one thing to remember, at that point in time in the seventies, we're pretty small. Everything all the the workaday jobs at the school were done by students. 
um, we, that was how most of the students paid their way through school, doing things, which nowadays you don't have that. You have staff and stuff like that. So um, Dr. Falwell was very connected. We always had an athletic director. Gaylord Davis was our first athletic director. Uh, Dan Manley, he was the first official one. Dan Manley, when he started basketball, was kind of like the athletic director de facto because Dr. Falwell called him in and asked him to to start the basketball program. So he went on and got that done. But Gaylord Davis was the first uh, athletic director we had. Dale Gibson followed him. Uh, so but Dr. Falwell was always very connected into the programs, plural, and everything that was going on. I mean, to give you an idea, you know, back in those days when Dr. Falwell traveled around, he traveled on a DC-3. That's the old World War II kind of plane that had the tail wheel, and it sits on an angle whenever it landed. You know, it would land on the front wheels, and the tail would drop down. It was that kind of a plane. And he would always fly on that. Well, one of the earliest phones that got installed that were wireless type phones was on that plane in this area. And Dr. Falwell, as he's flying back in town, no matter when it was, he, he'd call me on my phone at my house and say, uh, how did the boys do today? You know, or how did the girls do today? He knew when people are playing, uh, if he was out of town and this could be two o'clock in the morning when he's coming back in and he would call me and say, when, when my wife and I got married, I told her, look, we got to have a phone next to the bed. She goes, why do we have to have that? She was grew up with a phone in the kitchen. That's what we did. And, of course, phones back then weren't what we have now. They were on the wall or on the tabletop, and, um, and they had dial tones and stuff like that. So it was a very different world. I told her, I said, because Dr. Falwell calls me two or three nights a week just to check on scores. He always wanted to know how the teams were doing and everything else. And so he would – Call me at home and check and see if the basketball team won that day. Did the women's basketball team win, et cetera? I mean, he was very invested, very involved, and and he thought of it as my boys, my girls. He thought of them as part of his family. It was um, it was a very unique experience. Wow. So you touched a bit on the relationship that you and Falwell had. You know, can you can you expound a bit more or expand a bit more? I should say about, you know, how would you characterize the relationship that you guys had? Because, you know, I mean, it's obvious he cared about every individual he wanted. He, you know, he he wanted to see everybody succeed in everything that they did, no matter what it was. So, you know, char- can you characterize that relationship you two had for me? Um, Dr. Falwell was the kind of person that when you met him, he would never forget your name. He He literally, as you say, cared about everybody. He had a pastor's heart. Sometimes that went negative, you know, that that he was too forgiving sometimes. And other times it was what rescued people. It was what helped people realize that we were a second chance uh, opportunity for them at Liberty. And um, that's why even today we have the reputation of being a school of the second chance. And uh, that's carried through. That was one of Dr. Falwell's things because of his pastor's heart. Uh, Personally, I got to know him from the time I was a student. Um, My work with uh, the athletics department certainly enhanced that relationship because we were constantly in contact with each other um, about different things. And so I've always felt that I had a very good personal relationship with him and could ask him uh, questions about anything. 
So I I would have access to him in his office if I needed it. Now, I was at least smart enough at that stage. I, I was young, so I wasn't always smart. But I was smart enough never to take advantage of it. And I can only think of one time that I ever asked to see him in his office. Now, there were multiple times that he asked to see me in his office because he didn't like the way something went or he wanted to strategize how something could be different. And he wanted to talk to me about it. Uh, usually he talked with the AD first. And then because of whatever they were working on, it was worthwhile to, to speak to me. And they would bring me into the meeting and we would talk about it uh, and things like that. So my personal relationship with him was was very strong. He was very uh, he was pretty displeased with me when I left. Uh, and he and Mark DeMoss, who was uh, involved in the board at that time, Mark DeMoss was a former kicker here at Liberty in the 70s. And I was his SID. I knew Mark very well. And uh, they used to, when they would see me, they would try to convince me to come back when I was gone from here. And I, I never was quite, timing was never quite right until 2005 when I came back. And he was involved in that process too. Awesome. Well, we'll get we'll get to when you came back in a little bit. I do want to get to that a little bit later, but I want to talk a little bit more about some of those early days in your first in here. So, you know, I want to ask you about being an SID in those days when Liberty was a much smaller program. Media coverage was not the same as it is now. I mean, nowadays we're seeing Liberty is getting on national TV for football, you know, every year at least. I think with their deal, I think at least one game every year is on one a linear, linear game. One linear year. game every year. So it's going to be BYU this year. Yeah, BYU this year. And, um, you know, with, with all that, you know, that back in those days, media coverage wasn't the same. So as an SID, you know, how was your job different back then? And how did you guys try to promote Liberty in a sense? Because you guys were still having to build yourself up, even in a town like Lynchburg. I mean, there's already a lot of high school teams here, and, and I think a lot of people had allegiances to that back in those days. Well, in our in our town back in those days, it was 40% UVA and 60% Virginia Tech, and we were basically 0% in the town. Uh, we would draw good crowds at our football games or our basketball games because of the student population. There's a long history of student involvement in our games that hasn't changed even to today with students being so involved with our sports teams. Um, we were mostly, our promotional effort for the most part was local. Um, we used to, uh, in the earliest days, there was conflict because Lynchburg College, now University of Lynchburg, uh, felt like they owned the town. Liberty was the newcomer, the interloper, the one coming in. And uh, it was a struggle at first to get 50-50 on the coverage. And as our teams began to get better, um, we started to ten we, we started to edge ahead in the amount of local coverage that we got. Uh, local TV covered us. Uh, occasionally, we could get Roanoke. It was a big deal to get Roanoke TV to come in, an SLS or a DBJ to come in here to cover a story. It was a pretty big deal. Um, but... Uh, and they didn't have regional offices here like they do now. That wasn't the way it worked back then. Um, so most of our effort was local. Now, it was inevitable because of uh, Dr. Falwell's personality and because he he drew all the media attention. You're talking about national media attention. Dr. Falwell drew it like a magnet. And he would say sometimes, uh, I'm looking forward to today when our football team – is going to be on the level with the University of Alabama, and we uh, 
and we can compete at that level. And I can't wait for, till the day when we can p- be for Mormon kids what BYU is and be for the Catholic kids what Notre Dame is. We will become the evangelical uh, equivalent of those. And people used to laugh, and he used to say about looking forward to the day we'd play BYU and looking forward to the day we would play Notre Dame. And Notre Dame was the, the big one, and we have played them in multiple sports nowadays, but we've never played them in football. But I can remember every time that happened, I would have people from the New York Times, from Sports Illustrated, uh, from major media outlets calling and saying, did he really say this? Yes. Do you believe that it's going to happen? And I said, I would not question the vision of Dr. Falwell. I said, because this school has already, and we're talking now into the late 70s, early 80s, I said, this school has already surpassed what anybody thought it could be, and we have a long way to go. And they would they would discount me occasionally. They would print something about it. I remember Sports Illustrated put it in one of their issues, uh, and they confirm we confirmed with a source, a local source, that he in fact said this. I was the local source that said yes, he said it. Um, so it was uh, it was very different to get media coverage back then. Um, the the coverage for TV was as far as live coverage was virtually non-existent. The first ever TV broadcast we had here was against Moorhead State. It was our first Division One game we ever played, and we were hosting them here. Uh, back in those days, there wasn't the division between FCS, FBS, and Moorhead State would be the equivalent of an FCS team nowadays. Uh, we broadcast that game on TV. I worked with a company out of Roanoke who brought in the, the cameras, and they were the huge, uh, you know, three feet, square or cubicle kind of cameras that we had to rope up onto the top of the uh, the press box and all that. And I still, somewhere at my house, I have pictures that used to hang on my office wall that had the first ever TV broadcast on it uh, against Moorhead. And we actually won the game. That was our first ever TV broadcast. But uh, we've come a long way since then. Bruce Carey took it and pr- began to produce it and took it way further than we ever did that day. Wow, that's incredible. And, you know, I mean, Dr. Fallow would never say something unless he believed it. Like everything he oh, said in the media no question. was 100%. Like he wasn't saying it just to create headlines. He said it because he really believed it. Tell me, in you know, his eye, yeah. he could see it. Yeah. There's stories of him yeah. walking this campus before anything was here and saying, well, this is where a dorm's going to be. This is where a classroom's going to be. And he took the biblical idea of everywhere my foot trod. Uh, that God would give it to him. He literally walked the entire space when there was nothing here, when it was a farm, the Carter farm. He walked the space and prayed over every step. Wow, that's incredible. So, you know, how intentional, you know, was he very intentional about making sure that the media heard what he said because he wanted to keep putting Liberty's name out there? Or was he it, never or was expressed he just, it to yeah. me that way? I mean, he was so media savvy that I'm sure that in his mind he knew it was going to get out there. Didn't mean he was saying it out of hand that it didn't have intent and true or truth to it. He had intent, but it was absolutely the truth in his mind, in his vision's eye. He could see it. Um, I personally believe that. In his way, he saw what our football team is today um, in his vision. Now, did he see the stadium the way it looks right now? I, I can't say that he did that. But the fact that we would be playing Division One and going to a bowl game 
And I, I can I can remember how amazed he was when tailgating really took off here. The fact that people would would tailgate at our games was just amazing to him. And uh, that was in the recent years. But yeah, well, and tailgating's taken on a big form today. I mean, I'm personally I love. You know, when even like when I'm working on football broadcasts nowadays, like man, I I love just walking around campus and just the energy around here on a game day for football is just I mean, it's 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 incredible. It, it really, really is. And, you know, I mean it's it's awesome to see the fan support that's kinda come out. And you you talked about how back in the early days it was sixty percent V T, forty percent UVA. You know, Liberty has has carved out its niche of fans now in the Lynchburg area to where there are people that Liberty is their team nowadays. Yeah, we we used to say when what I used to do all the the uh, sponsorships and I started the program where we were trying to get sponsors and sell ads for our programs and on the radio and all that kind of stuff. And um, we used to have a saying when you go out and mention Liberty, it's pucker or duck. And in other words, they were going to love you or they were going to hit you. And more often than not, you're ducking because the town was not uh, huge fans of Liberty. They saw us as interlopers and kind of the weird people up on the hillside. Um, but that changed over time. I, I don't know that all the business community is totally aligned with us. I don't have, a, you know, I don't harbor any illusion that that's true, but business communities tend to be very pragmatic. And over time, they began to align themselves with us in a sponsorship situation because they knew that's where the future was. And so, um, so those kinds of things became a factor and became a part of it. And, you know, Dr. Falwell never pushed those kind of things. He pushed the overall vision, the overall uh, – his dream of what we could be. Awesome. So, you know, you talked a bit about the first TV broadcast that you had against Moorhead State. You also were a part of the group that put together um, what's now known as the Liberty Flame Sports Network. Back then it was just called Flame Sports Network back in the early days. Tell me about how that came about and, and how important that was to this university to get that going when you guys had the resources available to do it. Well, back in the 70s, uh, a guy named Wayne Campbell was the general manager at a radio station, which still exists today. Brad Epperson owns it today at WBRG, which is out in Madison Heights. And he came to us with the idea that uh, that we should be on radio, doing radio broadcast. And he was uh, an elderly person, and we decided to go with him and uh, put our games on radio. And that was in the 70, late 70s that we went on radio. And for a while, I was on the broadcast with him doing color. We ended up with other people because I was I didn't play football, so I wasn't really fit for that. Then uh, there came a time when Wayne wanted to step away, and they, he asked me to do the, uh, while I was still a student, asked me to do some of the uh, play-by-play stuff, which I did. And then ultimately, uh, as we move forward, a guy named Frank Capiello, who is the general manager of the Lynchburg Mets, became our play-by-play guy. And Frank had to go to the winter meetings in baseball because he was tied to professional baseball. And so I was left with two games left in the season at that point. I wasn't doing the broadcast at that point. And I had to find somebody to take the games and start to produce them or start to do play-by-play for them. And I heard about a guy who was working for Dr. Wilmington in the Bible Institute, came from Ohio, had done high school play-by-play there, 
I reached out to him and ended up hiring him to do the two games. And 25 years later or more, Jerry Edwards was known as the voice of the Flames, and, and I hired him back then. Jerry then became ultimately the manager of what we know today as The Journey, WRVL Radio. Um, and he and I worked together to create our first ever radio network. At our, at our Zenith, we had eight stations on. Uh, we put the infrastructure in the old Journey studios, which uh, were in the Docent House at the Carter Mansion now. It's, it's called a Docent House. Um, the radio station used to be there. And in the back room, we put a couple of racks in with the ability to distribute. You didn't have the Internet back then. It was all done by phone lines and things like that. And we could have stations on. We had six regular stations. And a couple times our visiting teams would get their local station to pick up the broadcast and do it. That was the beginnings of the Flame Sports Network. Wow, that's incredible. And obviously, Jerry Edwards was, you know, instrumental in, in, in the building up of that as time went on. And it's still, you know, still going strong today yeah. and still and still very important nowadays. And, and so, you know, tell me about, you know, back in those days, you know, how how difficult that was at times maybe to put put yourselves out there in the media because you know back in those days nowadays it's a lot easier you have the internet you have facebook you, know, you can stream your games on facebook for free if you're a if you're you're a lower level college back then you you had to convince people that that or you had to do more convincing i should say to say you're wor- you're a product worth putting on the air how did you how did you convince people of that or was that all just stuff you guys built yourself i actually got a hold of um uh, NRB, National Religious Broadcasters um, Directory. And I kind of drew a circle, and it was like an eight-state region that I went after every Christian radio station out there to and called them and talked to them, pitched the idea of carrying Liberty football on Saturday afternoons. And uh, it was by phone calling and getting it set up that way that we were able to add, I think the first year we only had like three, and by about the third or fourth year we had up to where we had six. I remember one of them was in Kentucky. Uh, There were a couple in Virginia and a couple in North Carolina that we added. I I can't remember now who they were, but uh, that was how we put it together, was calling Christian radio stations to see if they were interested in trying something different. And, you know, we had to think about creating formats, and we had to think about selling sponsors on our side, but then also leaving space for them to sell sponsors on their side, help them sell their sponsors and stuff like that. Um, And it it paid off in some ways in recruiting because we would have kids come here that had heard our games on the radio. And that was unique enough back then that they perceived us as bigger than what we really were because we were on the radio in their town or their area, that kind of a thing. So it was it was kind of fun, kind of different. One of the biggest challenges we faced was just getting the money together to buy that equipment and get it installed, you know, because we had to convince our own administration it was worth the effort to do it. Because um, back in those days, we basically had to pay our own way. In other words, I had to sell the radio sponsorships to get the money to be able to buy the equipment. And then I had to convince the administration that the money was used there best as opposed to somewhere else. Wow, that's incredible. So, you know, now we've talked about everything that you had, you know, back in the, you know, everything from the early days of Liberty at this point. We pretty much covered all the bases. So now I want to talk about, you know, you know, you left to go to West Virginia for about 20 years or so. Um, tell me about, you know, what 
went into you leaving initially and, and why you came back. You mentioned that uh, uh, Dr. Falwell and I believe you said it was DeMoss, I believe, had some something to do with that. Tell me about that. Well, the, Dr. Falwell and DeMoss are the ones who kept asking me by the time I came back. We'll get into that, but it's a little different. But for me to leave, I had been thinking about leaving. I felt like the Lord wanted me to go elsewhere uh, for a couple of years. And I had interviewed for a couple of different jobs in state um, and ended up, uh, one offered me a job and I turned it, I turned it down. And, and I began to realize about a year later, I think God really had wanted me to go there. Uh, and I wasn't willing to step out and do, cause I had done Liberty been where I'd been. I wasn't really willing to step out. Um, was very involved at the national level with a group called College Sports Information Directors of America, COSIDA, who is now the College Communicators, is what they're called now. But I uh, was very involved, was on the board, involved nationally, a lot of different people that I was connected to, Virginia Tech, UVA, Maryland, were people that I was really well connected to. And West Virginia was looking for a person in their communications area, and Jack Zane was the SID at Maryland, and a friend from West Virginia called him and asked him, do you know of anybody out there? And Jack and I had talked about the fact that I think God wants me to go somewhere. I don't know where. I thought maybe Jack would ask me to come to Maryland, which I thought would be cool because I grew up five minutes or 10 minutes from Cole Fieldhouse on the campus of Maryland. thought that would be cool. Uh, as it worked out, Jack told um, a guy from West Virginia, I know somebody that would be a good fit for you. And here he is, and let me let me call him, or uh, let me get you to call him. So they called me on uh, a Wednesday, offered me the chance to come in and interview for the job. Flew me up Thursday, offered me the job Friday, and two weeks later I was moving to West Virginia um, to to become there. What then was called a sports publications director. Wow, incredible! And then, and then, how did you? Um, you know, you were there for a while, and then what caused you to come back to Liberty? Um, I was uh, vice president of a company uh, outside of West Virginia for five years. I was a collegiate consultant and traveled all up and down the East Coast, doing things mostly involved with uh, with printing, but other types of things also. And there were several schools that I consulted with to help them in the areas of alumni. Um, uh, development, athletics, of course, and uh, occasionally some academic units that were trying to brand themselves in a different way. And in the process of that, Liberty became one of my accounts, one of the people that I would come in and meet with a couple times a year, uh, advise them consulting in different ways. I was working with the AD at the time. Uh, he wanted me to help him create um, a position that would have been uh, like an associate AD kind of position. And I helped him create the job description, uh, helped him strategize how to go to the administration, ask for it, uh, the bullet points that he used during the presentation, all that kind of thing. And he called me and he goes, hey, he said, I've got, uh, I've got approval to hire the position. And I said, okay, great. Let me help you go find people because I placed people uh, headhunter kind of thing, but that wasn't my business. I just knew people from being in the business so long. And I said, let me help you find somebody. He goes, I, I already know who I want. I don't need anything else. And I said, okay, who do you want? And uh, let me make sure that 
you know, that they're interested. You don't have to call them. I'll call them for you, whatever. He goes, no, he goes, I want you. And I said, well, I, I don't know. And he said, well, think about it and I'll call you back. And over a period of about three weeks, he called me multiple times trying to find out. And I was hedging. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. Um, but my my father-in-law had, within the past year, had died. And my wife, was, who's from here, was very concerned about her mom. And she finally said, let's just go home. One morning, we were getting ready to go to work, just said, let's go home. And so I called him up and said, you know, we'll come here and uh, and do this. And so August of 2005, um, I loaded up my car with stuff and moved down here. And several weeks later, my, my sister-in-law lives here in town, so I moved in with her. And so I had a place to go and... My wife came with me the day I moved in, and while we were here, somebody and I took a pretty substantial pay cut to come to Liberty, as almost everybody does when you do that. And we were wondering, okay, how are we going to make this? And while we were here that first week, she got a phone call from a local business that said, we heard you're coming back to town. Uh, We'd like to hire you. And my wife got a job that was almost to the penny what we gave up for us to come here. And, she, and I looked at my wife and told her, I said, I, I think I see God's hand in this. And so she had to go home quick, load up her car, and bring back her stuff. And she started two weeks later at a new job. I mean, that's incredible. That's yeah. incredible. Man, that, that's the Lord's hand just over you right there. That's all that that is. That's, that's incredible. So, you know, tell me, when you first came back to Liberty, you know, what was the biggest difference from how you left it to how you came back? And I'm sure there's more than one answer. Oh, there's when you first said, what's the biggest difference? I my first year back was our one in 10 football season. And I remember sitting on it and, and understand when I was at West Virginia, we went to bowl games every year, um, 16 bowl games while I was there. Uh, it was a very common thing. We played for two national championships. We never won it, but we played for it. And um, so. I sat on the hillside about, I don't know, eight or nine games in. We used to have a hillside where the kids played and rolled down. Now it's uh, all stands, completely closed in. But uh, I remember sitting on the hillside thinking, oh, my goodness, what have I done? Because we were like one and eight at that point, and our only win was over at NAI school. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Is this really what you had for me, Lord? Is this really what you wanted me to do? And... uh, Things things changed pretty radically at that point because uh, we had what we used to call in the athletic department Black Thursday, where all of a sudden eight people got gone, including the football coach, including the athletic director who had just hired me, and everything else. And so it was very different. Um, what had changed, I, to be honest, I sat there and looked at less than a thousand people sitting in the stands. And we used to, when I was here, we would draw several thousand because we were still at City Stadium when I left. The new stadium had not been built yet. And so we were drawing several thousand people at City Stadium. And I looked across and thought, oh, my goodness, it's like bottomed out. It can't go any lower because we had like 800 people at the game. And it was pretty crazy. Years later, somebody that I knew took a picture of the stands in that game and put it next to the stands when we played, I think it might have been when we played Montana, when we set one of our tennis records. 
and said, look at what you've done in the time you've been here. It was a friend that had taken those pictures, married them together and showed, and it, it just showed how things were able to be changed. Um, basketball was not in a great place. Baseball was pretty, pretty successful at that point. Um, but not at the level we were. I mean, when I was here in the eighties and working with baseball, cause I used to work with every sport. I didn't get a break. And, um, baseball, that was when we had Sid Bream and Lee Guterman who went on to play in the major leagues and we played for national championships and stuff like that. Um, so in some ways, uh, we were bigger and better because we were division one, which wasn't true. The only division one sport I worked with when I was here in the first stint was baseball, because when we went NCAA division one, you could pick one sport to be division one other than football, basketball. We chose baseball to be the division one sport. So we were division one in baseball before all the other sports became division one. And so it was, um, it was still somewhat Spartan. We were just hitting the point with our online program where it had grown to the point where the wheel was going to keep spinning. In other words, the the stress financially of the past decade was beginning to fade away. The difficulty, there were times in the late 90s when people would get their paychecks and be asked not to cash them and stuff like that because the financial straits were so serious at that point. So when I came back in 05, the online program had grown to the point to where it was sustaining itself and doing really well. And it was then over the next five years became enough of a financial engine that we were able to do a lot of things on campus. So I came at a time when things were a little bit on a downside and they were trying to rebuild it. When when I came to interview for the job, the AD said to Dr. Falwell, do you want to interview him for this job? He goes, no, just hire him. He goes, I know everything about him, just hire him. And uh, so when I came here to interview, almost everybody always interviewed with Dr. Falwell. I didn't. Um, I interviewed with Ron Godwin, and Ron Godwin told me, he goes, look, Dr. Falwell wants you here, so whatever it takes, you're going to be here. He said he's he's done asking. He wants it to happen now. And so he had had breakfast that morning with Dr. Falwell, who told him this was going to happen. So and, and Dr. Falwell's motivation was he wanted to remake the athletic department. He felt like it was floundering. He wanted it. And I was the only person that was a Liberty grad that was out there in a power five at that point in time. And he wanted me to come back. And so the A.D., convinced me convinced me through multiple asks to come back so it was a downtime but over the next five years and Jeff Barber became the AD and had a lot of vision a lot of uh, energy to make things happen and I was part of that core group that was able to begin to grow the athletic department into what Dr. Falwell dreamed it could be you know was there ever a moment during this time frame and when you've been here since 2005 where you sat out and looked at something and said this is the vision that Dr. Falwell had so many years ago when you were sitting there when your athletics facility was on Treasure Island when you were playing games at City Stadium you were playing you know NAIA level football you know all the all this all the stuff you told me about was there ever a moment in your time here that you said this is the vision Falwell had so many years ago Oh, that that's happened so many times. The the FBS announcement uh, 
um, was in one way the culmination of Dr. Falwell's dream to go FBS. And I remember when the announcement was made, um, there were a couple people there, high-level people, who came to me and said, the dream is being realized. And I said it was, and they said, you were there at the start. Did you really believe it? I never doubted that it was going to happen because I believed in Dr. Falwell's vision 100%. I won't say that I believed it was going to happen in my lifetime. I just believed it was going to happen. Uh, so to be able to live it and experience it um, is a blessing beyond anything I could have imagined. Um, did I? There are constant points along the way when we blocked that field goal attempt to beat Coastal Carolina and go to the FCS playoffs the first time. I was standing right there on the sideline, heard the the thunk thunk, you know, which when you're a special teams guy, the thunk thunk means the kicker kicked it and somebody blocked it. Um, I remember the exultation of that. And as I was I was working sidelines for radio on that game, and as I went onto the field to try to get some sound for the radio broadcast, uh, I remember I stopped for just a minute and just looked at the sky. And it was a moment to be able to, to feel that. Um, one that's real recent, we're watching Notre Dame-BYU football game because we're going to play BYU. My wife, because of the time when I was at West Virginia and we played Notre Dame in the champ national championship game, in the Fiesta Bowl, uh, she's never liked Notre Dame since because of the things that they did. They're supposed to be so lily white, so clean, and they were one of the dirtiest teams that we'd ever played. It was unbelievable the things that their players did to our players, and she knew about that. She's never liked Notre Dame since. So we're sitting there Saturday watching the game, uh, BYU-Notre Dame, and she finally kind of looks up from the book. She's reading, she says, why are we watching Notre Dame? And I said, because – they're playing BYU, and we're going to play them in a couple of weeks. So I want to see BYU. And she goes, uh, she goes, well, okay, I guess we can put up in there. I says, hon, I said, the day's coming when we're going to play Notre Dame. I just hope I'm alive to see it. Um, so do I feel the vision? Yes. Do I believe the vision? Yes. I never thought this stuff would happen in my lifetime. I thought it would happen, but I thought it would take longer. Now I'm convinced that I'm going to get to see the vision of us playing Notre Dame somewhere. Now, my guess is it's going to have to be a bowl game because Notre Dame in and of themselves won't schedule us. So it's going to have to be a bowl game situation, probably. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, if, if, if Liberty ever makes a track to South Bend, I grew up an hour and a half from there, whatever it takes, you better believe I'll be there, 100%. I've been there because West Virginia <laughs> played them. Um, at their place, and so it's it's quite a unique experience. It you is. Know, do, you, when I went there, the Football Hall of Fame was there. Now it's in Atlanta, mm -hmm. but we went to the Hall of Fame. We yeah. we saw Touchdown Jesus. We yep. saw all that stuff. Yeah, I went there once when I was like ten years old or something like that when I was younger. So you know, um, you know, last question for you. You know, you know, if if there's anything in your lifetime that you would that you feel like you have to see from this athletic program, you know, that you well that you feel you really want to see, like you have to see it, what's that thing for you? I would say at this point, um, again, being somewhat realistic, I want to see us win a conference championship. Um, to me, that's the next big goal in front of us. And you're saying in football specifically. I'm, I'm talking about football. Um, I'd like to see 
if I could see it, I'd love to see basketball go and win a couple of games in the NCAA tournament. Because once you win a couple, who knows what's going to happen then? You know, you might make, you know, the round of eight. You know, if you win a couple, you're in the Sweet 16. I did that when we were at West Virginia one time. And then one time while I was working here, West Virginia made it to the Final Four. And I got to go see the game in Indianapolis. Um, I would love to see Coach McKay win a couple games because at that point, anything can happen. And who knows what that could be. Um, football, I would like to see a conference championship. I'd like overall, I'd love to see us go into Conference USA and win I'm not sure what they call their Commissioner's Cup, but we have a history of winning Commissioner's Cups in every league we've been in. I'd love to see us be good enough as a program to do that. And I think we're in the running for it going in. And if we begin to get better because of the higher level of competition, I think it's very possible. But the one thing I think I'd like to see initially would be the football win a conference championship. Wow. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for, for talking with me today and, uh, you know, you know, getting um, everybody going here uh, on this podcast. And uh, just, you know, Kevin, again, you know, great to hear from somebody like you who obviously has a big passion for liberty, for the vision, and someone that's been here throughout the time, was here back in the earliest of days when it was truly just a vision, and uh, now being able to see it, you know, nowadays. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you right now, personally, from my standpoint, you know, I, you know, I hope, I hope that me and everybody that comes after me doesn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, how cool it is to be walking in the vision of Dr. Falwell Sr. many years ago. And I, I, I hope I never lose sight of that. I hope everybody that comes after me doesn't lose sight of that. I hope everybody here right now doesn't lose sight of that. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for talking with me today. And it was um, awesome to have you and just hear, you know, you know, I heard how emotional you got and just how much, you know, it means to you to see Liberty where it is. It. It means a ton. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so very much, Kevin. Folks, that's it for today. We will see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Climbing Thy Mountain. Be on the lookout on Friday for Episode 2, as former track and field and cross-country coach Brent Tolzma sits down with Josh to talk about his time at Liberty. Thank you once again for tuning in.